Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Professor Dean Rickles, the author of the new book, Life is Short, an appropriately brief guide to making it more meaningful. Dean is a professor of history and philosophy of modern physics at the University of Sydney, where he is also a director of the Sydney Center for Time. In the conversation, Dean and I discuss why the shortness of life is what makes it meaningful, how to overcome the fear of death, Seneca's influence on the book, the need for uncertainty, how to connect with the future you, discerning our path in life, and much more. Before we bring on our guest, just a quick reminder, if you're not already a subscriber to our daily meditations on the art of living, I encourage you to visit perennialleader.com to subscribe. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Professor Dean Rickles. Dean, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time to come on, and we're going to be chatting about your book, Life is Short, an appropriately brief guide to making it more meaningful. Really enjoyed the book. Um, But before we get into it, we generally start with some sort of question around the search of maybe what got you you started in life. So today... You're a professor of history and philosophy. How did this all get started? Why did you get a PhD? Tell us uh, anything you feel comfortable sharing. So there was no, I didn't really have any access to philosophy when I was a kid at school. We don't really uh, do that kind of thing. I actually um, noticed you had Kieran Setia on recently. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, he's from exactly the same place I'm from, um, Hull in England. And he's pretty much the same age as me. I'm not sure whether I actually met him as a, as a kid. I, I should contact him. So I grew up in, in Hull in a slightly working class area. Not much philosophy around, but I was doing what I later discovered is uh, philosophical thinking all the time, just not in school. I paid no attention in school whatsoever. I was just dreaming constantly, um, in particular on the issue of um, why is there something rather than nothing, which I still work on now. I've got an a big project running on that and on death. And I remember um, looking back on it, I was dabbling with this problem of the um, of how it had to be that there was existence. And I was constantly going around ways that it would, it, that there must be existence for some reason. And I was thinking about what I now know as the principle of non-contradiction. You know, you can't have both P and not P and thinking about possibilities. My mind still, I still thinking these terms now. So this was when I was, really young, sort of seven, eight, I would think about these things. Um, it was for what, And I carried on doing this, and I couldn't really speak to people about this. So I, it was all entirely in my own head. I remember I once told a friend about some models I'd make, made, they're cosmological models, I would call them now, about what happens before the Big Bang and how it might go through some sort of um, interior space. And I was having, a lot, I used to visualize things like this a lot. And my friend thought I was completely mad. He just, <laughs> so I, I, I learned never to say anything about those things again. And uh, so I, I didn't know about physics. What we did in physics was not what I would think of as physics now. It was sort of burning peanuts and stretching springs, which is not the most interesting <laughs> physics. So, but I was also, in, I was also looking into those things as well, but just not realizing that that was physics. So I completely bypassed philosophy and physics until much later. And I ended up actually getting into piano heavily when I was about 13 and really getting obsessed. And I got, I went to music college first 
and I was studying to be a, a concert pianist until I was about um, 18. And then I ended up doing psychedelics, actually. And then that got me heavily back onto thinking about space-time in particular. So in, in particular, it was the thought of whether space has a structure, like an atomic structure and a fine-grained structure. So I started thinking about discreteness and continuity of space and time. Um, the day after that experience, I actually went to a bookshop and bought Bertrand Russell's Problems of Philosophy, which was really good, very simple to read. And it was exactly the kind of thing that I was thinking about. And then it was almost immediately that I decided to switch to do philosophy and physics. Mm. And then so I did that first degree, was again, utterly obsessed by the subject, realizing that while this stuff exists, like there is a field where people think about these things as their main profession about space time and symmetries and all of these kinds of things that I was always thinking about in some way. And then went through all of this, con constantly doing physics alongside philosophy because I knew I wanted to work on space-time physics, and then ended up doing a PhD on quantum gravity, conceptual issues in quantum gravity, which is all about the microstructure of space-time. And that's pretty much been my has been my main primary research area for a long time. I've done things on string theory, and then in the past few years, I've started getting into broader questions to do with humanity and meaning and death again and sort of the, the the big questions of metaphysics that i used to think about a long long time ago i'm now thinking about again probably pandemic related uh, i would imagine <laughs> well i love it i i'm uh, i'm grateful for a bit of the background how do you make sense of from a from a search standpoint a particular topic or question I think I heard you maybe describe it as some sort of in, insatiable thing or obsessed. How do you make sense of like an idea or a question that can maybe grab a hold of you and and stay with you for, you know, many years in some cases, you know, the rest of someone's life? Yeah, well, I mean the the problem of why there's something rather than nothing is the classic one that obsesses people i know lots of people who constantly roll this one around in their minds and obviously the thing about that one is it can't be um resolved in standard ways i think the obsession comes from the fact that you need to delve everywhere to answer these kind of questions because you can't look at the world to answer it you can't learn more physics and answer it or more mathematics it lies somewhere really deep and what's nice about this question is that it takes you through all of these other disciplines like physics and mathematics. It sort of encompasses them, but it also encompasses things like consciousness and the, the role of the human observer and whether that has anything to do with it. And there are all sorts of different stories. There are just so many different stories that you can give to answer this question. I think in the end, it's actually unanswerable, but I also want to know why it's unanswerable if it's unanswerable. That's a, that's yeah. a, a further puzzle that uh, interests me. So that, but yeah, I suppose it is the classic quest kind of question, right? So when you read Bertrand Russell's book, you know, you go in this bookstore, you get this book on philosophy, you get to the end of it. What gives you the belief that, yes, this is something I can do. This is something, you know, that I should, I should follow and pursue. Anything come to mind? Yeah. Well, it, it, because it was exactly the things I'd always thought about. It yeah. was absolutely familiar to me, this way of thinking. The idea, uh, again, going back to the question of why there's something rather than nothing, the world never actually made sense to me. There was no reason for it. It could go out of existence at any, in, any second for all I knew. So this sort of deeper way of looking at the world and trying to figure out what lies behind it or at a deeper level, that was exactly what is in that Bertrand Russell book. And he describes it so plainly that mm. even as a novice, I was able to understand it and see, okay, this is kind of my, this is what I've been doing. And this is what I've been searching for this kind of, um, this way of thinking. It blew my mind, completely blew my mind that, that it was there. All of the things I've been thinking about. I, I was reading it on a bus. I started reading it on a, on the, on the bus going back from the bookshop and I was just like, what? This is amazing. 
I, I love this idea of just the power of of a book that can open you up to something you've been thinking about or, you know, something new and, and really alter the trajectory of, of someone's life. And, and I really enjoyed, um, th- this book, the life is short. I, I read it on the Kindle version and then also picked up the, the audible version, which is, which is great. Um, and I saw on the, uh, one of the reviews, Oliver Berkman called it uh, an existential slap in the face. And, and he's a previous <laughs> guest on the show. So some listeners may remember him, but uh, uh, I love that. But I'd almost maybe add in a good way. But so, so why is this an existential slap in the face, this book that you just put out, you think? Well, because it's, I mean, it's classic existentialism in the sense that it says that there is no essence to what it is to be you, that you're the one who constructs what you uh, what you will be in this world. The, the difference from standard existentialism, although you can find similar things in Heidegger, later existentialists, uh, is that it puts the focus entirely on death. So death is the thing that forces you to think about the construction and building your own notion of what you are meant to be and what you are going to be in the world. Because it imposes a, a sense of urgency on the choices that you make. If it was unlimited, you would there'd be no sense of, I need to decide now. Am I going to be this? Am I going to do this? Which way am I going to go? And it's in those um, specific decisions that you're carving what you are, basically. We're carving your past, and then that makes you who you are. And one of the things I... Um, really liked about the book, and this comes from the physics side, is this idea that we're not only choosing um, who we are, but every solid decision we make also determines how the universe goes. The universe doesn't know what it's going to do until we decide what we're going to do as well. So this relates to some things known as um, uh, participatory realism in quantum mechanics, a whole new class of interpretations of quantum theory that have come out. Mm. Due to John, uh, this guy John Wheeler came up with it initially. So this, I think, is very a very interesting way of thinking about physics because it's completely opposed to how we usually think about physics, which is that we're just passive and we observe, we make measurements, and we reveal how the world was before. But with these new approaches, it's you that's playing a role, not a, not a complete role, playing some role in determining what the universe does next. And that gives you a sense of agency and a sense of responsibility in how the future goes. And you can think of building the future in this way, whereas in the other way, you can't. You're not really responsible. So, you know, why should you be battling whatever, climate change or whatever other issue it is? How can you do that even if you don't have free will and the ability to um, determine how the universe goes? So there's a whole bunch of ways that projects that, come off this book. This was kind of a starting a sort of jumping off point for a bunch of things I'm looking at now. Nice. You write in the beginning of the book, this idea, you mentioned it there of, you know, maybe boundaries, this game of life, it, it has to have boundaries. Why is that important? And, and maybe how does it connect with a meaningful life? Yeah. I mean, so this is, I mean, it goes to what we were just saying there. If you, if you are unlimited, if you have no constraints or no boundaries on how you can act and what you can do in the world, then you can sample all possibilities. And if you're sampling all possibilities, then when you're not really doing anything. If you're doing everything, it doesn't really uh, amount to a choice or a sacrifice or a decision of sorts. It's a, I compare it, again, because I sort of have this background in physics, I compare it to the, um, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. So usually when we make a measurement of something, we think we get that answer out and the other one is gone. That, that doesn't exist anymore. In many worlds interpretations, you make a moment, so you've got two possibilities for the answer that the world can give you, heads or tails. Imagine it's a coin. If both happen, then you haven't really gotten an answer, a, a definitive answer. Nothing has happened. If everything happens, nothing happens in a weird way. And things like probabilities don't make sense. And So... Sort of, 
it's a it's necessary for coherence for the coherence of things like choice and action and decisions and sacrifice of other possibilities that you have this boundary that's limiting what you can do and without that then you're not really carving out a meaningful life because you can just do anything be anything you can't be everything that's not really a coherent um scenario for a human so and i think so I mean, this is not the only source of, of meaning of life. This is what I think is a very significant source of meaning that most people overlook is that we're responsible for choosing what we're going to be and choosing what kind of universe we have around us at the same time, which I think is a sort of hugely meaningful position for humans. It relates to some things that I mentioned this in the book that um, C.G. Jung, the, the psychologist C.G. Jung mentions about the but humans being the sort of second creators, they sort of they're the additional bit that objectifies and tells the universe what it's going to be and what it's going to do. It goes back to you. I mean, you're called the is it the perennial? What's the the podcast? Is the perennial podcast right? You're talking looking at perennial issues, and this goes back to a lot of perennial wisdom. There's a, a famous mystic called Jakob Burma who has this idea that without humans involved. The world would just be in chaos. We, we bring order to the chaos by making these decisions and turning potentials into actualities. So that so that there's a bit of um, sort of good pedigree of these kinds of ideas that are coming from physics. Remember, I'm sort of drawing this from reasonable areas of physics, not crazy areas of physics. Yeah. Ian, you bring in a lot of different... <laughs> wisdom schools and traditions in the book one one figure that many of the listeners will probably be familiar with is the stoic philosopher seneca and on the shortness of life how does he maybe shape this book a bit and and maybe where do you part ways with uh some of his thoughts yeah so i mean you can tell from the title that you know like a shot that this the original motivation for this book was to bring Seneca's The Shortness of Life into the present era and to see how it fares and how things that he discussed have changed and how things are completely the same. A lot of things are absolutely identical. You can read this book today and it's so fresh still, the things that he talks about. Um, where I part ways, I think, is mainly on this issue of the importance of, of death. And the other important um, departure is probably this, this idea that Seneca is a bit more of a um, a presentist. He, he would he would suit something like the mindfulness approach to life. It sort of seize seize opportunities now. Don't worry so much about the future. Don't dwell so much about the past. So I think there's a there's a place for that. But I view it more in terms of um, this kind of balancing act, and this is where I draw in from C.G. Jung, who has these pair of personality types that he calls the Puer Eternus, which is the eternal child, and the Senex, which sounds like Seneca, right? Uh, which is the old man, which is this rational thing that dwells on. So the Senex looks at the future and the past and plans and thinks. The Puer is in the moment and just lives for now. So I don't think either of those is good if you take it um, you know, if you exclusively follow those patterns. So the, part of the point of the book is to figure out, is to step back from both Pua and Senex, step back from the ego, essentially, to make decisions that are in keeping with something like what you want, you want to be, rather than being programmed. Because if you're living in the moment, then you're not fully aware whether you're being just buffeted around by all sorts of other influences from the media, from old traumas, from complexes, from a whole bunch of things. Um, Jung likens it to being like a cork in an ocean. Right? If you don't know what, this cork is just bobbing around, it's not controlling itself. And if you're just living in the present, which Seneca often suggests in that book, then it's not really necessarily you living, you're just being thrown around by the ocean. So you have to have a bit more um, of a balanced, a balanced approach, in my view. And Seneca, classic, you know, stoicist that he is, tries to downplay anxieties about death. So it's the standard thing in stoicism to say we don't need to worry about death. Look, you were you weren't around before you were born. 
it's no different to not being around when you die. They say things like that to try and lessen the impact. But obviously the whole point of this book is that the meaning of life is coming from death, basically. So death is not to be dismissed the way the Stoics do. It's like absolutely the crucial component or a crucial component to living a meaningful life, that you have this limit, this constraint that's forcing you to actualize and think um, and be more authentic. Let me ask a, a curiosity question, if I could, Dean. A, another figure that's come up on previous episodes is Epicurus. Lots of popular quotes ab- about death that are still pop up today. And, you know, this idea of overcoming the fear of death that we all maybe have this lingering fear. Is that how you, is that how you see it and experience it? Like, does that resonate with you of of a lingering background fear of death or not so much? I think probably I used to have extreme fear of death when I was younger, like really sleepless nights at the thought of nothingness, uh, sheer annihilation. So, I mean, there's a few th- a few points in this book where I mention this about trying to get a hold on what it is that bothers us about not being there. And it's a lot of it has to do with our it's the curtailment of, of possibilities. I mean, you can't really compare it, you know, the future non-being to the past non-being, because the future we think of as open to possibilities. That's what bothers us, the fact that they're going to be curtailed. I mean, I call it sort of um, sort of the ultimate FOMO, the ultimate fear of missing out <laughs> on what's out there, which is, sort of how I think, that's a lot of what bothers, I think that's what bothers most people about death. And then there's also the other aspect, which is the relational aspect which is that you're missing out on people and people are going to miss out on you and be bothered that you've that you've gone um but this book probably helped me quite a lot with the the old death anxiety because it gave me a way of seeing that it's actually necessary Mm. that you can't do without it there just wouldn't life wouldn't even make sense if it weren't there wouldn't be coherent so a lot of so the book is kind of one long argument in one way for getting to that point where you think, yes, it has to be there for various reasons. It needs to force us to do this, force us to think about um, these other aspects. So, yeah, it probably helped me a bit. I'm not sure whether it will help others. I hope so. I don't have any fear of death now. So It's interesting. Does that connect? It seems to connect for me. I, I wonder if maybe for others of just uncertainty in general. Like the acknowledgement that uncertainty, even if it's not just death, but just in in general for wonder and curiosity, things like that, you know, the beautiful things of life, uncertainty has to exist. Can you think about it broadly like that? Yeah, I mean, of course, this this is the whole point of, I mean, another point of the book is this business of the provisional life. So we are absolutely swimming in uncertainty and the problem is if you jump in most people don't want to jump into big decisions because of the uncertainty and once they fix a path then they have to deal with it whatever happens then you remove the uncertainty but you also have to deal with the consequences so part of this idea of the poor eternus character the eternal child is that they don't want to want responsibilities so they swim constantly in these uncertainties because at least if you've got uncertainties you don't ever have to think about things you don't ever have to face things including death so they just continue swimming in the uncertainty rather than making selections and sacrificing things i think that's the um the important point of of this book is that when you're making decisions it always comes with a sacrifice of possibilities obviously the um your point was that there's People are worried about the uncertainty of death. They don't know what's coming in the future. I suppose that's a huge point. Well, they, but of course they do know what's coming. They know that they are hmm. going to die. Yeah. So, you know, so a lot of things, I suppose, I mean, there's this really nice book I stumbled across recently by, um, I always forget his surname, Sheldon, Sheldon somebody. Or, or and it's called The, the Worm at the Core. And the worm at the core is William James's expression for, you know, we have this nice life 
It's all very lovely, but there's this rotten bit, a worm at the core, which is death. Mm. And we generally try and forget about that worm at the core. And we have things, all of these, Sheldon Goldstein, maybe, um, talks about these things called terror, talks about terror management theory. And the idea is that pretty much all of our culture and all of our life and all of our projects are nothing other than trying to avoid facing the fact that there isn't really uncertainty with respect to our death. We are going to die. So it gets displaced, sublimated onto all of these other things. So our culture is built also from (laughs) this sort of implicit latent knowledge of death that we try to pretend isn't there. And we manage it, terror management theory, by doing all of these other things. Whereas you have people like, well, in this book, me, but Heidegger and the existentialists who say, no, you have to have this point of death in view because otherwise it makes your projects inauthentic. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of flailing around without purpose. If you don't have that vision, the absolute necessity of death in the future, you're not really acting purposively and authentically, mm-hmm. which is kind of the point I'm making in this book. It's interesting. As you've talked about, that this project for you writing this book is, has helped you and maybe getting into the deep waters and thinking deeply uh, about death. It's, it's bringing up like Spinoza, this idea of think least of death. Do you think that there is a, a need to, to maybe wade in these deep waters and, and think deeply about death? And then at the other side of that, maybe you come out, you know, thinking least of death and, and you know, thinking about life. And any thoughts there? Um yeah, I know that quote. Um I don't know. I see it's a I mean an interesting thing is I share the same metaphysics as Spinoza. But I absolutely disagree uh about his view his view of death. I, I don't know why he ends up with this view of death. It doesn't really cohere um, with his metaphysics. His metaphysics is this um, infinite aspect view. He thinks that there's just one thing ultimately and it gets split into various aspects like mind and matter and things like this. Um, So ultimately, on Spinoza's view, there is no death because these aspects are illusory splits of this fundamental one thing, the substance, God. So so death doesn't quite exist in the same way if you take Spinoza's view seriously. I don't know, maybe that's why he says think least of death, but I, I don't know. I, maybe you know this better than me because you've read something recently. Where, where is it, where's the motivation coming from for, for that quote, think least of death? I, I'm not sure. It's, it's an interesting idea. I had Stephen Nadler on who's, um, you yeah, know, yeah. written a number of books on Spinoza and, and one of his most recent is Think Least of Death. And he really rails against the Stoics in that, um, you know, in the book of this, this idea of meditating on your mortality often. But when you said that you don't fear death today, I don't know, it made me think of that, that, that maybe, and, and I don't know, I, I've, I've maybe, um, thought that maybe that was Spinoza, that at a certain point you come to accept this eternal truth. There is no uncertainty about it. And then it it gives you a bit of agency and freedom Mm -hmm. to stand up a little taller and and think more about life. But I'm just uh, speculating. Yeah, I just remember. So the book, uh, the Steve Nadler book. Yeah. So the point of that one is that he's focusing, he mentions that Spinoza focuses on the joy of living you shouldn't be focusing on death you should be focusing on the joy of living if you're rational and it's irrational to focus on the death point and these memento mori ideas i mean there's something a little bit strange about that because then it focuses too much on joy and you know there's like all sorts of thought experiments classic thought experiments there's one due to j.s mill called the happy pig and there's the pleasure machine and you can sort of imagine it's something like so imagine there's like a really powerful artificial intelligence who's been programmed with the prime directive to generate joy in those people hooked up to it. Imagine a matrix style scenario, something like that. And then what this machine does, it just pulls them 
whichever way is necessary, triggered into their reward system or something like that, to constantly make their life joyous. And the algorithm knows and trains itself on you. We, this happens to us, right? We're already being trained by the algorithms in this way. Uh, and then you die, right? You, so you live, you're born into this system, you live absolute maximal joy, and then you die. Well, you know, what would you make of a life like that? What is that? It's not life. It's a, a life of, of pure joy where you're not focusing on the contrasts and you don't have the obstacles that are leading you to think more about the joy itself in a different way is pretty stagnant, I think. Mm. I mean, I make the same, I make a, a point about, I have the same uh, instinct with respect to Buddhism. I used to really like Buddhism. And I now view it as, a, as doing something similar to this, as pl plugging themselves into an AI and just going for a bliss and detaching from reality with its suffering. And the Buddhists are the, are the most scared of death. The reason why they go down this complete detachment where they're trying to die even while they're still alive to get used to it so they, is to allay an absolutely massive fear of death rather than living but living in a way that you know you're going to die. So you, you have more appreciation of it and focus on the right things that you should be focusing on. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I want to spend some time. I, I really enjoyed chapter four and, and five of the book. And, you know, you bring up something that is not talked about often around, you know, this idea of the future me, and you suggest that we should do it basically improve our, our skills of, of mental time travel, if you will. I was wondering if you could unpack that and say more. Yeah. So this is, um, I mean, look, we all know the, the sort of classic manifestations of this, what's called hyperbolic discounting. So economists call it, and psychologists call it hyperbolic discounting which is that you can sort of plan into the future and think about the future very well for small time scales. Um, and you can be rational in small time scales about your future self. But the longer, the further the time, the future time gets away, the worse you are at being rational about it. So I mentioned one, this is my classic, I'm still terrible at it, I really need to get this sorted, is agreeing to things more so if they're far in the future. So I will stack up things, you know, agree to write a chapter for a book or, or agree to speak at a conference. So I say yes, because it's six months, one year, two years in the future. And you, your brain goes, yeah, that's abstract. It's not real. It's like virtual reality still. And then we end up getting caught up by them. So kids do it all the time with their homework. They'll, and university students, they'll leave it till the last minute. Uh, we're completely rational with where we stack our timings. I mentioned in the book, I used to be sort of almost the opposite at one stage. Once I got the, the philosophy obsession, I used to push myself to the point that I wouldn't let myself ever rest. I, wouldn't, um, I would basically fall, collapse in a heap after working for multiple days without sleep, trying to you know, do everything now rather than leaving it for later. But the standard thing is hyperbolic discounting. And one of the things I say... One of the arguments I say in the book is that you, the reason why you tend to discount those far future versions of you, if you want to call them versions of you, is because it's abstract. Whereas if you can think about it in 10 minutes, you know it's still you. You know it's going to be you that's having the experience. It's going to occupy your present moment. Your subjective awareness is going to be impacted by it. As that gets further and further away, it's harder to keep that in mind. And you'll probably find that one of the things that successful people, I, I, you know, those that write a lot are, are prolific in some way, are able to hold a very vivid image of what it's going to be like in the future when they complete a certain task. And there's been experiments done by this. I mentioned some F MRI experiments done by Hal Hirschfeld, um, where they show that the kind of um, brain modules, the brain areas that you use when you think about something happening to a stranger. It's the same kind of brain mod module you use when you think about something that's happening to you in several years. So you're viewing your the future version as a stranger. And that's why you're behaving irrationally. You're not as nice to your future self as you should be. 
because you're viewing it as a stranger. And the vividness, the more you can, you can train yourself, they show how you can do training, vividness training, future time travel, as you mentioned, to increase the degree of connectedness that you feel towards the future version. One of the other things I mentioned in the book is that I think it's, it would probably be a good idea to dispense with the expression future self because that automatically distinguishes it. from It makes it sound different, but it's you. It's not a future self. It's just you. It's, it's going to be the same subjectivity, you know, it's going to be continu continuously connected with you. You're going to be having the experience, not a future self. It's not some other thing. So if, if you start thinking about it in those terms, I think that would sort of also increase the degree of connectedness that you would feel towards you in the future. So you should say you in the future is all you need to do. What do you think might help a listener to do that? I know you've mentioned, you know, some practices maybe of, of changing the language and thinking about ourselves connected. But if you say this future you, the future me, 20 years from now, the idea of death, yes, it's a certainty. We know it's going to happen, but we, the when is the uncertain thing. So what about someone that is maybe like listeners of the show that are practicing memento mori and are, are maybe well aware of this and they're, you know, how do you navigate that balance? I guess, if you will, any, any thoughts? Well, in terms of strategies, this idea that you're carving a path is at the roots of of the whole book, of course. So there's a there will be unless there is some physical reason that's preventing you, say, from you know being some kind of bodybuilder. You know, you want a particular kind of body. You want to learn a particular kind of skill. You want to be a different kind of person. You want to learn some. Yeah, even some empathy training, you know that there will be a certain set of steps. It's probably going to be different for every single person, the set of steps you have to do to get to there. So the classic thing is to have a micro or mini steps. Lists are absolutely unbelievable. I'm, I've always been a huge list maker. I have an A3 sheet. It's not really a list. It's an A3 sheet that has all of the things I want to do. It compartmentalized into sort of thematic areas and <laughs> order of um, um, order of priority and these kind of things. And it changes all the time. I never meet it. It's always completely over the top, but I do quite a, quite a few of them. And they are micro steps that get you to, you know, to a certain way to the, the big vision that you have of yourself. So it's kind of thinking about that, the, the path that is going to lead you to that point and imagining what steps sequence of steps you have to do to get there and as i said the more vividness you see the actual version that you want to be the easier it is to do those steps and not get distracted because it's it's you it's like you wouldn't give yourself a hangover in to your five seconds future you right yeah. you just wouldn't do it it's it's, it's, the, it's the it's always the distance if you could, if you could get to that future vision in a, in a very couple of short steps, then you would do it because you, the connection, the connectedness is there. The future is graspable, so you need to somehow find a way of making it that that future vision is graspable. And it's the, these micro steps are unfortunately the only way. But the vividness is shown even experimentally to be absolutely uh, crucial. I love it, and I love the idea of. Um the list thing as you're, as you're talking about it, it seems like of a list. We, we all might have a tendency of putting ourselves at the bottom of a, of a list and that doesn't quite ever, ever come around. And maybe even more so as you talk about in the, in the book of this future, you really can go to the bottom of the list. I found connected to this, uh, you know, chapter five, this project me, uh, I'm a fan of uh, this existential idea, at least this specific thing of we're creating and carving ourselves out. You uh, you bring in the existentialist Sartre. Could you maybe differentiate this idea of being an object rather than a subject? I found that to be really clear and powerful. Again, it goes back to a few things we've discussed already. I mean, one of the 
But there's a, a quote I mentioned at the end of the book, actually, but it, it's probably more relevant to this point, which is from Terence McKenna, um, the psychedelic psychonaut, I suppose he would call himself, um, where he says, and it was a mushroom that said, that told him this magic <laughs> mushroom. Anyway, so he said, um, "Be part. Have a plan, because if you don't have a plan, you'll be part of somebody else's plan." So he was talking more about the, you know, society and other human beings having plans for you, but the world as well will go its merry way, right? The world moves according to laws of nature and the laws of entropy and so on, unless you put energy into certain places, it's going to take you with it. So you're sort of always fighting the entropy and always bringing this uncertainty and chaos into order by making particular actions and decisions. So that's it. Um, exactly what you're doing in terms of subject and object. So, I mean, this goes back to the, this is Sartre's classic um, bad faith example. You Because you don't have any essence, um, most people allow other conditions, external factors to create what they are going to be. But they're not necessarily any, anything, right? They are responsible for creating what they are as subjects. And it, go, it goes back to the bobbing cork again. The bobbing cork is acting as an object. It's being thrown around at the mercy of the forces of nature. Maybe another person might come and grab it. That's at the, the, force, the mercy of other subjects. But you are not acting as a subject if you're being bobbed around uh, in this way like a cork. So, again, it's, it's the whole business of having to make decisions that carve particular paths and, unfortunately, facing whatever consequences come from that because they're not always good consequences obviously you might choose something that backfires but you are still acting authentically as a subject rather than an object and it's you that's having the impact on the world i suppose the modern way of speaking about this is in terms of programming right where now in computer age you are responsible for programming the universe otherwise you will be programmed by all of the various cultural and physical forces around you I'm curious, and maybe you touched on it there, but if you could elaborate, you know, if you think of listeners, project me, what stands in the way? What are common obstacles that, that maybe get in the way of, uh, you know, the average person in, in your view of putting some of this actually into practice, rubber meets the road? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's... There are practical matters. Not everybody is in a position where they can even have the luxury of thinking much about these these kind yeah. of ideas. Like that, people are more heavily constrained than others. So there's just you know sort of socio-economic constraints that come in first. But even in there, you can make mini versions of trying to um, assert some kind of. Um, some sort of control over the actions that you're that you're doing it's obviously much much more difficult it's more more general problems have to do with the ego of course um, the ego wants to be free the ego doesn't want to be um, constrained so it will sort of battle against making certain decisions that limit it so one of the crucial things is to step outside of the ego of course which is harder it's hard to do, easier said than done. This is why there's a whole um, discussion on the Jungian notion of individuation, which is precisely to try and get that ego under control um, by sort of trying to ferret out all of these underground influences that are poking it around and moving it like the cork, right? All the complexes and the traumas that you're not aware of because they're hiding in the unconscious. So the idea is to bring these to the surface so you know that the decisions you're making are actually yours and that you can make decisions. But often a lot of those little things that are hidden are going to be sabotaging all kinds of all kinds of efforts. Another problem is just the sheer amount of possibilities facing somebody. You have to make some kind of decision in this world. That used to be a lot easier to make decisions because there were less things that you could be or choose from. Now we just have everything open to us. We have, we have too much choice, too many ways we could go, too many paths we could go down. So it's hard to know which one to do. So you don't do any because, <laughs> you know, which one. And there's more chance of it going wrong. The more there are, the more ways there are 
or for it to go wrong, which goes back to the uncertainty that you mentioned earlier. And of course, your life span is continuing, and as you as you progress, they matter more. The selections you make and the sacrifices you make matter more because they're not reversible. A lot of them. Hence, midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me ask maybe a maybe a difficult question. Maybe maybe not. You mentioned in the beginning of the conversation of you had a lot of clarity. You had a lot of energy around this this interest and and what you want to do you know you you, you read uh, a book on on philosophy and you're you're on your way down this particular path and i'm i'm sure there's been lots of forks in the road a, along the way but there might be many listeners and and i can connect with this that at times maybe there's these choices there's definitely a lot of choices but maybe there's not a ton of clarity or a ton of energy around, you know, which path to, to go down, you know, any thoughts? Uh, I know you work with, with students as a professor and things like that. Uh, and I'm sure that that maybe comes up for some of them and just a random question to throw to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a difficult one for Jung when he was considering exactly this problem, he suggests that at a certain point, if you can't think what to do, anything will do, as long as you're doing some kind of work and making decisions and committing to it fully. Yeah. It, it can turn into anything at any point, but the, you, you need to be doing something and committing to something. Um, otherwise, you're swimming in the uncertainty, and, that, and it feels bad. At least when you're committing to something, even if it's not exactly the thing that you know fires you up, at least you are involved in it yeah you know at least it's real so this is again it goes back to the poor eternus thing this poor eternus concept they don't want to be limited people who are um who fit this archetype work is one of the most limiting it, it's grounding literally grounding right yeah sort of it's manual it's not what gods do who are unlimited so it's something you don't want to do but for young it's essential to cracking this problem of living provisionally with uncertainty yeah. or in virtual reality. So at a certain point, although it's not nice to say, if you can't think what to do, just do anything for now with some sort of degree of discipline and commitment and something will probably emerge from that. It doesn't sound nice, but I think it's probably about as good as, about as, good as it gets in terms, of, in terms of advice. Choose one topic. You're talking about PhD students. I would send them down some path. Something will pop up eventually, which will trigger something. But if you're not acting in any way, you're not going to be encountering things that will trigger and ignite things that do get you really passionate. Yeah. Because you're not immersing yourself into, into anything. Yeah. I think that's, that's really helpful. I appreciate you sharing that. So we have this final wrap up question that we spend a, a few minutes on and it's around you know, how do you define or, or think about wisdom in daily life? So maybe if I could channel one of your students and they, they trap you after class and they want to, you know, they, they ask you, they have this obsession around wisdom. What, what might you share? Yeah, that's very difficult. I mean, so firstly, I think anybody that's honest, if they're going to start answering these questions, has to acknowledge an amount of hypocrisy that, that it's hard to meet what you are saying, you know, your own standards and what you are saying people should behave like. Um, but I think worth striving for is this idea of, of standing outside the ego, being able to stand outside the ego and, and practicing, practicing this kind of thing. I was reading something the other day by this guy, um, uh, Rollin McCratty, who has this thing called HeartMath, the HeartMath Institute. And he has this thing called the freeze frame, which is a device for jumping outside of a situation because most of our problems come from being reactive or not quite thinking or being dragged in by our emotions and all of these other, it's the ego always, right? So this, this practice of being able to just snap back and stand outside of whatever's going on like freezing time for a bit 
so you can analyze it a bit more rationally and not be reactive. It's really hard to do, obviously, but it's a kind of, it's a muscle that you can work. I think I'm still terrible at it, but I try. Mm. So I think that's about as 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 good as it gets in terms of everyday um, practicalities. What would you say has helped you if you reflect on you know the last decade or two? Has there been any particular practice or idea that has maybe helped you to be less reactive and and more wise in the day to day? Probably this. Um, well, actually, it would be some things I've only just recently started getting into, which again relate to perennial ideas more broadly understood, which is the this hermetic idea. You know, Hermes Trismegistus was this sort of famous figure that we associate with alchemy now. But he has this famous saying, which is it's usually said in terms of as above, so below, but it can also be as inside, so outside. And the idea is that they kind of, and it's stoic as well, it's very stoic. The idea is that the world that you are experiencing as happening is basically you, it's inside you. You change the inside, you can change how the outside is appearing. He, he, he meant it very um, physically, as in you can literally change the outside. It doesn't need to be understood like that. It can be understood in a stoic sense as well, i.e. you're sort of in charge of how things are looking out there. I think that's extremely uh, useful way of thinking. Hmm. You can even think about it in terms of world, you know, world problems. Like the reason it's like that is because I'm not qu- quite doing something as well as I should. And you can tune yourself. It's again, it's trying to avoid hypocrisy as much as possible. You can't complain hmm. about things out there if you're doing a version of it inside. No, I love it. And I think that's a, a wonderful way to wrap up the show. I am super grateful for your time, Dean. Again, uh, for the listeners, the book is Life is Short. Uh, You can pick it up wherever good books are sold. I highly recommend it. Is there anywhere you might point listeners, um, you know, to learn more about you or or your work in the world? I don't know. I don't have any social media at all. So (laughs) for reasons explained in the book, actually, life's too short for social media. (laughs) But I'm on there on Wikipedia, I suppose, in bookshops have lists of my books i love it we'll, we'll link it in the in the show notes so it's easy to find uh dean rickles thank you so much for coming on in search of wisdom i appreciate it thank you pleasure thank you for listening i hope you found something useful if so i encourage you to put what you heard into practice you can learn more at perennialleader.com there you'll find links to show notes our daily email newsletter, and Reading in the Good Life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.